good to be with you again tonight at Matthias's lot. As we begin, the elders wanted me to be sure that I made a very special announcement to our body tonight. Um, this week, we officially became a Southern Baptist church. It's pretty exciting, isn't it? That's really not true. <laughs> April Fool's. But you know what? Like, it seems like we're becoming more and more like a Southern Baptist church. Like, I'm seeing these large gaps in the first three to four rows. You know, I'm starting to wonder what's happening. Like, everybody's in the back. I can barely even see you guys tonight, partly because the lights are blinding, but the other part is because nobody's here in front of me. Oh, it is wonderful to be here with you tonight. As we begin, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had a friend who was just honest. You know the type of friend I'm talking about? The type of friend when you go to McDonald's and you're sitting around with a group of friends and you're eating a cheeseburger and you get a little piece of pickle stuck in your tooth? The friend that says, hey, you've got a pickle in your tooth. It's in front of everybody. Or the type of friend when you go to the mall and you're trying on clothes and you're like, does this make me look fat? And they're like, yes. Very fat. Don't get it. You know? Like, have you ever had a friend like that? Don't you love friends like that? Because you know what? Even though sometimes they can be very harsh because they're so honest, when you need good advice, when you need somebody to tell you the truth, that's the friend that you go to. Because that you know that they will shoot you straight. You know, in the last month of March, as we've been going through this first um, John this epistle that he writes to the Church of Asia Minor. One thing that I'm beginning to see more and more, and I'm sure you're seeing it too, is that John was a straight shooter, you know? Like, he was the one that would have pointed out the pickle or told you you look fat. Now, why do I say that? Because if you look in his writings as he writes this letter, and he challenges the church, he says, you must believe that God came, fully God in the flesh, the incarnate Christ. You must believe that because it's essential to our faith. This Gnostic view that has been coming in, that has been infiltrating the church, it's not true, so he challenges it. And then in chapter 2, where we've been all last March, he says, do not sin. Obey the commandments of God. Love your brother. He's very straightforward. He's very honest. And then last week, beautifully, Mark taught about how he takes a step back and he just spends some time encouraging the church, saying, church, children of God, your sins are forgiven. You know God. He has made you strong, strong by His power to defeat the devil. If there is anything that ought to get our church fired up, it ought to be that. Amen? Our sins are forgiven. We know God. Can we start on that note tonight? In the video that you just saw that Mark put together, it's the vision that our church has for mature believers that know God to be pouring into these new believers that are swarming to our church. I would gather to say that there's more new believers at our church than mature believers. And so we are in desperate need, not just of older people, but mature believers to pour into these new believers. 
As Mark described it last week, it's like a honeypot. You have to look at like Winnie the Pooh here, like dipping his hand in. In the sense that if we are really followers of Christ, we will see the beautiful opportunity that we have in this body to love new believers and to be disciples who make disciples. So older men and women that are mature in your faith, see the opportunity. Begin to engage young people. Invite your friends. Young people, invite your parents. We need to get some more gray-headed people like Tootie in our church, who is amazing. And we need to have those people pouring in to the young people. So tonight as we begin, can we just pray for that? Would that be cool with you guys? Let's pray, and then we're going to get into the text. Father, God, we love you. And we believe that you have called us as a church, as true Christ followers of you that have our sins forgiven, that know God and that are strong in our faith. God, we ask that you would help us to be a church that pushes our mature followers of Christ to pour in to new believers and those that even have not believed. God, we pray for wisdom in this church. We pray for gray hair. We pray for people that have been journeying with you for a long time that have the knowledge of you so that they could pour into us because we need it. God, please bring it. Please bring it. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope last week was a nice reprieve for you and encouragement because John is back to point out the pickles in your teeth to tell you that you look fat in the dress, you know? <laughs> like, he's back to be honest. And, and by the way, in all of this, he is encouraging us as Christians how to live and how to truly follow Christ. You see, as a follower of Christ, when you know Jesus and when you've been forgiven, that doesn't mean that all the temptation to sin just goes away. So we need somebody to be honest about the desires of our flesh and to be honest about the temptation that we deal with. So let's get in. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Turn with me there. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. This is what the text says. 15a, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. In order for us to go any farther today, we have to take a hard look at what John means here when he says this word world. You see, there's three different ways that John uses the word world. And because he says it six times over the course of the next three verses, if we don't understand which world he's using, this whole text could be very confusing. So let's do a little bit of language work here as we begin so we can understand the rest of the text. And let's see here what John is saying to us. In the three ways that John uses the word world, the first can be seen in John chapter 1, verse 10. Let's check out this passage. John chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. In this first passage that we're going to look at, in the world was made through him. As John writes his gospel, what he is saying there is that through Christ, the world was made. And he's speaking specifically about creation. 
So there are times when John writes that he uses the word world to mean creation, the mountains, the rivers, the valleys, the sky, the grass. Now, if you use this usage of the word world and you put this in, do not love creation, do not love the mountains, that wouldn't make a lot of sense, you know? Like the mountains, the, the grass, the sky, it's all neutral. Now, if, if you don't like to recycle, like this is not your verse, you know what I'm saying? Like you look at that and you're like, do not love the world. Perfect. You know, now I don't have to throw my things in the recycling bin. My wife is amazing at recycling. I mean, she is like overly amazing. There's times where I'll feed the, the kids like a can of corn. And I, after I give them the corn, I'm not paying attention and I throw it in the trash can. Like I'll go to the bathroom and I'll come back and 15 minutes later, the can of corn is sitting on the counter. Just as a reminder to me that I need to recycle, you know? If you really think about it, though, followers of Christ, because we believe that God has called us to be stewards of this earth that he has given us, we ought to be the best recyclers, right? Like, we ought to be the best at taking care of the world because we believe that this world belongs to God. And while we are here, he has called us to be good stewards of it. So this first verse is not talking about the created world. Let's keep going. Here's the second usage that John uses from time to time. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Check this out. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Now, if you take our first meaning the created world, and then you put it in this passage, John chapter 3, 16 and 17, and you said, For God so loved the mountains that He gave His only Son that whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. That wouldn't make sense, would it? Like Jesus came, but He didn't come to die for the mountains so that the mountains could have eternal life. This passage is talking specifically about people. So the second way that John uses this word world is when he is referring to people that exist in the world. That's the second way. Here's the third way. This is the one that he uses most often. And this is going to be an important definition. So I want to challenge you to turn your ears and to listen to what this says. The third way that John uses the word world is the attitudes and the values that are in opposition to God. The attitudes and the values that are in opposition to God. Let me give you another definition. This is a definition by a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones, a deceased pastor who was an amazing pastor that had many great writings. Look at what he says. It is that outlook on life that is exclusive to God. So, do not love that outlook on life that is exclusive to God to God that is prevalent in the world in which we exist. Now, many of you right now, you have the propensity to begin to step back and you look to the person that's on your left and you look to the person that's on your right, especially believers. You're trying to find the non-believer in the room and you're saying, and I'm glad that John's not going to point out the pickle in my teeth tonight, you know? Here's the deal. John wrote this to followers of Jesus. This is to you and to me. So let's engage our minds, let's prepare our hearts, and let's receive here what he is about to say to us about this 
loving of the world. 15b. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, if you've been journeying with us at Matthias Lot for any significant amount of time, you'll know that the last book that we were in was the book of Luke. And while we were in the book of Luke, the doctor wrote a, a verse that was very important to us. It was huge in our understanding through that gospel of what he was trying to say about dual loves. And if you look at this passage with me, Luke chapter 16, verse 13, we're going to use scripture to interpret scripture. Luke chapter 16, verse 13. Luke said, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and he'll despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What Luke says is exactly what John is saying. He says, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. You cannot. If you take anything away, listen to this. You cannot love God and love the world at the same time. Let me give you an example to help you think about what that would look like. There are many ladies in the room right now. I can say because of even what we've been learning in 1 John, that I love you. John tells us that if we love God, we'll love our brothers and we'll love our sisters. So in a holy way, not in a perverted way, I love you. But there is one in the room that I love more. There's one in the room that I love differently than I love all of you. She's the one, if a fire broke out, that I'll run to and that I'll save. She's the one that if a man walked in here wielding a gun and he started shooting people up, she's the one that I will go and I'll take the bullet for. She's the one at the end of the night when I go home and I get ready to lay my head down on my bed and I say, honey, how was the message? She'll be honest. You know? That one. Now, if there was ever a time in my life where I became emotionally attached to another. If there was ever a time in my life where I became physically connected to another. Ladies, I'll ask you, can I love both? Or will I now love one and despise the other? You know what I'm saying? Will I now lust for one and break a covenant with the other. You see, when I married my wife, I said, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. So despite the fact that we're aging, despite the fact that our bodies are changing, I have committed to her. And so at the point that I would give my love to another, I do not love my wife. Because if I did, I would stay committed to the promise I made. You cannot love Two women. You cannot love God in money. You cannot love God and love the world. You will love one and you will despise the other. You will love one and you will offend the other. You can't love them both. That's what John is saying here. 
There's some of us that are confused into believing that we can have the best of both worlds, that we can love the world and love the things of the world, and that we can love God the same. And you can't do it. You can't. Let's keep going here. Verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possession is not from the Father, but it is from the world. This is beautiful. It's one of the most brilliant passages that that I think that I've seen here as we've been journeying through 1 John. Because what John does is he takes a definition about what it looks like to be tempted and he pretty much encompasses all the different ways that the deceiver tries to get in our life and lead us astray from the time of Eve all the way up to the moment that we are sitting in this room right now. How does he do it? Because he speaks about three different things. Andrew, if you could put that slide up. He talks about the temptation, the desires of our flesh. He talks about the desires of our eyes. And then he says pride and possession. If you remember, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are there and God has made the garden and everything is good. He's made many plants and many trees that that they can partake from. But there's one, the knowledge of good and evil, that He's placed in the middle of the garden and He says, you cannot partake of that. But the deceiver comes and He tells Eve, you see, this is good for gaining knowledge. Did God really say that? And what does Eve do? She takes the fruit and the hunger that God has given her. Hunger, neutral. We all have hunger. Becomes the desire of her flesh. She wants something to eat. And that desire becomes greater than the desire that she has for God. And then she sees the the appeal, the delight to the eyes. As she looks at it, the the fruit sparkles. It catches her attention in her mind. And then she hears the words of the deceiver that says that if she partakes of it, she'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So then the deceiver appeals to her pride because she wants to be like God. That's how it works for Eve in the very beginning. Think about it this way. Jesus, Matthew chapter 4. He's been wandering in the wilderness without food, without water for 40 days, 40 nights. And he goes there to be tempted. And when he's tempted, what does the deceiver do? The power of darkness. He comes in and he says, Hey, Jesus, why don't you take these stones and just go ahead and turn them into bread? Jesus says, Man does not live on bread alone, but he lives on the Word of God. Then he takes Jesus up to a mountaintop and he says, Look, look at the kingdoms. It's beautiful. He tempts Jesus' eyes. And then, what does he do? He appeals to the pride. He says, If you bow down to me, I'll give you all this right now. You won't even have to go to the cross. You can have it right now. He appeals to the pride. You see, I believe that every single one of us, like Eve, like Jesus, when we are tempted, the deceiver comes oftentimes in one of these three ways. And the reason that I left the bottom here blank is because I want you to ask that question like, 
What is it for you? How are the desires of your flesh becoming not just natural desires that God has given us, but they're becoming lust? Is it food? You're at OCB, Old Country Buffet, you know? You've already had two plates, but man, that macaroni and cheese, you know, it's good. And you know, like you're full. You don't need another, but you want to go up and you satisfy the desires of your flesh knowing that you're not hungry. You're at that wedding. You've already had two glasses of wine. You're having a good time. Wine in and of itself, neutral, not bad. Our hearts, when we lust for more and more, make it bad. So you have four glasses, then you have six glasses, you have eight glasses, and all of a sudden you're drunk. You have chosen that over choosing to obey and to love God. Maybe it's sleep. I think normal people usually require like seven to nine hours of sleep, I don't know. But you go to bed at 10 and you wake up at 10. Like you're sleeping 12 hours. You could wake up. You could read your Bible. You could go exercise. You could go out and you could love someone. But instead you're satisfying this desire of your flesh because you love sleep. Man, that's a flesh desire. And the more and more you satisfy it, the more and more you become a sluggard and you become lazy. You are choosing your desires of your flesh over the desires that you have for God. That's loving the world. Or this. What about in your eyes? Is that where the deceiver is coming in and tempting you? I had an incredible meeting with a young woman who recently started coming to Matthias Lot and she wanted to, to be a Christ follower. And so I got to sit down with her at a coffee shop and talk to her about faith in Jesus, which was amazing. And during that conversation, she said this. She goes, I'm dealing with it. Is it, is it a sin for me when, I, when I'm walking down the street and I see a, a, a beautiful dress in the window and I want it? Is that a sin? Uh, the dress isn't a sin. I mean, hopefully it's, it's not a sinful dress, you know. I mean, I, get, I could be dicey, but the dress isn't a sin. The desire to have clothes is not a sin. But when the desire becomes that you would do anything to have that dress and you think about it and you want it and you'll take your credit card, which is already almost maxed out and you don't have the money and you'll buy it anyway and you would dishonor God by making that purchase, yes, it becomes coveting and it's a sin. And it starts with the desire of your eyes. Most of you know I live out in Winsville. And when I moved to Winsville, I decided that I needed a truck. I mean, you can't live in Winsville and not drive a truck. You know? I drive a Nissan Altima and I'm afraid that I'm going to get my tire slashed every day. Guys drive by and they assume I'm listening to boy band music, you know? Because I'm in an Altima. It's not just because of that. I really, I really want a truck. Like, I would love to have a truck. I think there's beautiful things that could come about having a truck, being able to use it to serve and to bless people. And so I've told my wife, you know, I want to save up some money and get a truck. Sometimes, though, when she drifts off to sleep, like, I have to wait about a year, but she goes to sleep and I get on Craigslist. I can spend hours looking at trucks. 
Silverado, 1500 Mud tires, 20-inch lift. Amazing. Mud flying everywhere, you know? Like, I, I get all these pictures, and, and then, like, I, I want to go and I want to get it then. Like, is a truck sinful? I don't think so. No. Truck isn't sinful. Is my desire to get a truck sinful? If I want to get that truck and to be able to bless my neighbors and to be able to use it for Second Saturday, is that sinful? No. That, that could be worship. That's awesome. But if I spend hours and hours and hours lusting for a truck with my eyes instead of using that time to glorify God and coveting that truck when I can't have it, can that be a sin? Absolutely. And it starts with our eyes. So then, after these first two things, they lead to a third, pride and possessions. Once we get it, once the lust of our flesh, once the lust of our eyes is satisfied, you finally move into that house that has the atrium in the back. It's got the giant windows. You always wanted those. Your friends come over and you open up the door and what you're saying is, hi, welcome to my house. It's good to see you. But what you're thinking is, Do you like my windows? What do you think of my foyer? You know? Like, look at my couch. That's pride in possession. Look at my GPA. Look at my job. Look at my truck when it stops and the rims keep spinning. Look at my hat that's cocked sideways. It still has a tag. Do you see how much I paid for it? That's pride and possessions. That's finally getting something and then boasting in what we have instead of boasting in the cross of Christ. That's what we're called to boast in as followers of Jesus, not in the possessions that we have. So what are you struggling with? Do any of these hit a little bit close to home for you? Going on this passage, he says, it is not from the Father, but it is from the world. When you live that way, when you are glorying in your flesh and in your eyes, you are glorying in the ways, in the love of the world. And you can't attribute that to God. I grew up in a small town, Muskogee, Oklahoma. I played on the Hilldale High School football team, which is, by the way, where I got my geography degree, if you were here last week. And it was on that team that my parents would come to my games a lot of times. And they would come to see me play, but my mom had really bad eyesight. So when she would be watching me play, and it would be a time where I was on the sidelines, she couldn't identify my face, even if I had my helmet off. And she would try to make out the numbers, but, but she couldn't really see. But there was one way that she could always say that she knew where I was. And it was because she always said that I stood like a Zelmer. Like, like even how I'm standing right now, if my mom walked in, she wouldn't be able to see anything except she would see me because she would see me by the way that I was standing. Now, I can attribute that to my dad, which would then attribute it to his dad. That's just a part of our family. That's who we are. Like if you're a lock, you just have like massive muscles. You know, they can attribute that to each other. When you live for the love of the world, seeking all of your joy in the things of this world, 
you cannot attribute that to God. That's our sin nature. That's being led away and deceived by the devil. When we are glorifying God, when we are enamored in our love, in His glory, then you can attribute that to God. Because God is most concerned with His glory. He wants it to be known. He wants it to be proclaimed. He wants Himself to be worshipped. And whenever you and I are glorifying Him and worshipping Him, then and only then can we attribute our life to Him. Because He's the only one that can do that in our heart. It's hard and it's sinful. And we need Him to help us to glorify Him. Isaiah chapter 43 says this beautifully. The prophet Isaiah says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. You and I have been created for the glory of God. And when we are truly glorifying Him, then and only then can we attribute it to Him. Let's finish this up. Verse 17a. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Here in this last part, 17a. The world is passing away along with its desires. When we moved into this building, there was one thing that we wanted to make sure everybody in this church understood. This building is only a building. It's not our church. You know? Like even sometimes I think that we still make the mistake, and and I do it as well, but we say we're going to the church. But the reality is the beauty of is the church is our body of believers. This building is crumbling. It's falling apart even as we sit here. It is wasting away. You and I, we're finite individuals. Right now, we are in the process of dying. Our jobs one day are going to come to an end. Our bank accounts are going to be depleted. Maybe sooner than later. You know? Like, this world is coming to an end. And John reminds us of this. There's another passage that I want you to look at. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29 to 31. What I mean, brothers, as Paul writes this to the church of Corinth, he says, it is that the time is short... From now on, those who have wives should live live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. What's Paul telling the church of Corinth? Is he saying, leave your wives Don't cry or don't laugh anymore. Stop working at your jobs. Stop buying and selling because life is short. No, he's saying, don't get engrossed in those things. Love your wife, but don't love her more than God. Love your job, but don't love it more than God. Laugh, cry, but don't find more joy in a comedy than you do in me. Because you know why? This life 
passing away. It's coming to an end. But then what does he say here in the end? But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What does it mean to abide? Because that word is, is going to be pretty important to us. To abide means that, as Mark has taught before, while the body is decaying, while we are in the process of dying, we have been created as spiritual beings. And so when Jesus says that like, we won't perish, it doesn't mean that our bodies are going to live forever. It means that our souls will abide forever with God. You and I have a promise here that we can live eternally with God forever. We're dying, but we can live forever with God. What could be more joyous? What could be more wonderful if we do the will of God? What is the will of God? Do we need to push in a cart of a hundred different Christian self-help books now to try to lay open the books and to try to read for a long time, to try to figure out the you know, next book that has the 13.5 ways of knowing if you're in the will of God? No. It's spelled out for us. The will of God is exactly opposite to the will of the world. The will of God is the opposite to the will of the world. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, it's spelled out like this. Jesus here is being asked by the Pharisees, what is the greatest commandment? And this is what he said. He said this to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. Now, I'm not saying that it's bad to read books that try to help us to figure out the will of God. I believe that that's good. But I believe that it is very possible that we have made finding the will of God way more difficult than it really is. You know what I'm saying? I was having a meeting with a very good friend of mine She's wanting to move. And the place that she is wanting to move to, she's got amazing friends that live there. She loves the area. She sees that there's going to be a good job there for her. She, she knows that there's going to be opportunities for her to do ministry, but she's so conflicted internally. And this is what she's dealing with because she says, I'm so connected here. I've got so many ways that I can love people. Jason, how do I know the will of God for my life? Should I move? This is what I asked her. I said, do you love God? And she said, yes. I know that she means it when she says it too because her life will prove it. And then I looked at her and I said, move. Move. It's easy. Because I know that wherever you go, you're going to love God. Like we try to figure out, where am I supposed to live? Who am I supposed to marry? What job am I supposed to have? Maybe we should be trying to figure out how to love God. God will bring all those other things to fruition. We need to be most concerned with loving Him. That's His will. Love God. That's the will of God. And when you love God, He will show you how to love people. Now right now, if I left you with this, 
And I said, go for it. Here's what I'm afraid of. We would leave and we would try to figure out how to overcome the temptation of our flesh. We would try really hard to stop looking at things that we shouldn't look at. We would try really hard to love God. But when Paul tells us to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, we don't have the capacity to fix our eyes. We need Jesus to fix our eyes. You and I, in and of ourselves, are completely incapable of doing it right. That's why God sent His Son, fully God and fully man. And as John has already told us, He lived the life that we should have lived and then He died the death that we should have died, becoming the propitiation for our sins. Meaning that He bore the wrath of God in His body for you and for me so that we could know God We could be restored to Him. We could stop making blood sacrifices because Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was sufficient. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if you want to know God, that begins with you believing that He is the King and you are not. And that to know Him means that you will accept Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, believing in what He's done, confessing it with your mouth, and believing it in your heart. And when you do that, my friend, you'll be saved. So tonight, if you don't know Jesus, do not harden your hearts. As Paul was on the road to Damascus, a lot of people say that like, you know, he was blinded there by the light when Jesus showed up. But as I was thinking about this today, he was blinded. But what I would say is that all of his life leading up to that moment, he was blind. And then God showed up, opened his eyes in the midst of a blindness and said, I am God. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you loving the world? Why won't you see me? Follow me. Believe in me. In what God did in that moment, as Christ was there before Saul, and he became Paul, he opened his eyes. And he said, see me. And when we see Christ, and God gives us faith that we don't possess in and of ourselves, then and only then may our faith turn in to obedience and thus begins the process of sanctification. We love you. We're glad you're here tonight. Do not harden your hearts. Meet Jesus for the first time. Let's pray. God, we love you. And I pray tonight, God, that you would be stronger than our will. (laughs) Our will and our natural desires is to love the world. We want to hit the buffet line one more time. We want to lust for trucks for hours. We want people to see the big windows in our houses. But God, you want us to have the best thing. 
to have the source where our joy will never end. And that only comes in knowing you by the blood of Jesus Christ. So God, if there are those here tonight that don't know you, I pray that you would blind them with your glory and that you would pull them up from the pit of sin and they would see your glory and they would believe in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.